I want to welcome you to Bellevue Community College. Uh, my name is Mark Story. I'm the BCC Philosophy Club advisor, and the Philosophy Club welcomes you in particular. Uh, we're here tonight to uh, attend a debate on the question, does God exist? With Bill Fernandes on uh, your left and Dan Barker on your right. I'm going to say a couple thank yous before I introduce these two, these two fine guys. Uh, first, I want to especially thank the student government for uh, su supporting this financially. Uh, this is not really taxpayers paying for this. This would be the, coming out of the student fees. And we want to just consider this to be kind of Bellevue Community College's extension of an open marketplace of ideas. We really don't have a particular religious or a religious agenda here. Uh, the Philosophy Club hopes to have many lectures and debates in the coming years uh, covering topics that might be of interest to you, Bellevue uh, Community College students, faculty, staff, and the surrounding community. I'd also like to thank John Wolf in the Philosophy Department. Tom Nielsen, Arts and Humanities Division, Ron Leatherbauer, and along with all the other BCC administrators who really supported the uh, BCC Philosophy Club strongly over the last year and a half of existence. We want to thank them quite a bit. I'd like to introduce Phil Fernandez first. Phil's um, here on my left. He's senior pastor of Trinity Bible Fellowship and president and founder of the Institute of Biblical Defense. Both of these are based in Bremerton, Washington. He teaches at Columbia Evangelical Seminary in Longview and at Cascade Bible College in Bellevue. He earned a Bachelor of, degree, bachelor of uh, Theology from uh, Forreston Theological Seminary, an MA in Religion from Liberty University, and a PhD in Philosophy of Religion from Greenwich University. He's published two books on our, these related topics. Uh, the first one, The God Who Sits Enthroned, Evidence for God's Existence. And the second one, No Other God's Defense of Biblical Christianity. Dan Barker, um, he's Director of Public Relations for the Freedom from Religion Foundation, a columnist for the periodical Free Thought Today. He earned a degree in religion from Azusa Pacific University, and he's well published. He's published uh, at least three books, Losing Faith in Faith from Preacher Atheist, Just Pretend, a Free Thought Book for Children, and Maybe Yes, Maybe No, A Guide for Young Skeptics. So both these people are going to be well qualified to offer a defense for both sides of the position. Bill Fernandez will be taking the theist side, Dan Bark will be taking the non-theist side. Let me just tell you what the schedule will be like so you know what's going to be happening tonight. It's going to be approximately two hours. We'll have, first of all, we'll have uh, Fernandez opening with 20 minutes to present his position. Then it'll be 20 minutes for Barker to present his position. After that, Fernandez will have 10 minutes of rebuttal and uh, Barker will have 10 minutes of rebuttal. Following the rebuttal, there'll be some cross-examination. First, for five minutes, Fernandez will cross-examine Barker, and then for five minutes, Barker will cross-examine uh, Fernandez. At that point, we've got a microphone here. You might be thinking of some questions. The audience will be able to ask questions of either one of the speakers. We are going to limit the questions to um, questions specifically directed to topics addressed tonight. So there may be many other issues surrounding the philosophy of religion, the existence of God. We want to have the questions focus on these topics. Secondly, we'd like the questions focused. We had thought maybe we'd have you write the questions down and I'd read them, but Philosophy Club decided to have you just have the freedom to ask them yourselves. We're going to ask you that you get to the point, ask a question, and let these fine people have an opportunity to respond. If you don't, I'm not going to politely say, you know, could you please come to your question? Please allow me that. To conclude, we'll each have five minutes for closing statements and remarks. And that should take us to about two hours. Uh, with that, I'd like to offer the podium to Fernandez. Thank you very much. Thanks.
I'd like to express my gratitude to Bellevue Community College for sponsoring this debate and Dan Barker for agreeing to debate me. I've chosen to utilize a cumulative case for God. This cumulative case will examine several different aspects of human experience that are more adequately explained by theism, the belief in a personal God, than by atheism, the rejection of the belief in a personal God. The thesis I seek to defend is as follows. It is more reasonable to be a theist than it is to be an atheist. For purposes of this debate, I will define God as the eternal uncaused cause of all else that exists. This being is personal, a moral and intelligent being, and unlimited in all his attributes. This being is separate from his creation, transcendent, but he is also involved with it, imminent. In short, I will argue that the God of theism exists. My first argument is from the beginning of the universe. This argument is as follows. Whatever began to exist must have a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause. Premise number one uses the law of causality. Non-being cannot cause being. In other words, from nothing, nothing comes. Since nothing is nothing, it can do nothing. Therefore, it can cause nothing. Hence, whatever began to exist needs a cause for its existence. Premise number two contends that the universe had a beginning. Scientific evidence for the beginning of the universe includes the second law of thermodynamics, energy deterioration, and the Big Bang model. The second law of thermodynamics is one of the most firmly established laws of modern science. It states that the amount of usable energy in a closed system is running down. This means that someday in the finite future, all the energy in the universe will be useless unless there is intervention from outside the universe. In other words, if left to itself, the universe will have an end. But if the universe is going to have an end, it had to have a beginning. At one time in the finite past, all, in the finite past, all the energy in the universe was usable. Since the universe is winding down, it must have been wound up. The universe is not eternal, it had a beginning, and since it had a beginning, it needs a cause, for from nothing, nothing comes. Due to energy deterioration, if the universe is eternal, it would have reached a state of equi equilibrium in which no change is possible an infinite amount of time ago. All of the universe's energy would already have been used up. Obviously, this is not the case. Therefore, the universe had a beginning. The Big Bang model also indicates that the universe had a beginning. In 1929, astronomer Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe is expanding at the same rate in all directions. As time moves forward, the universe is growing apart. But this means that if we go back in time, the physical universe will get smaller and smaller. Eventually, if we go back far enough in the past, the entire universe would be what scientists call a point of infinite density or a point of dimensionless space. However, if something is infinitely dense, it is non-existent. For existent things can only be finitely small. Again, we're talking about the physical universe here. The same can be said for points of dimensionless space. If a point has no dimensions, it is, a non, it is non-existent for it takes up no space. Therefore, if the Big Bang model is correct, 
It shows that the universe began out of nothing a finite time ago. This means that space, matter, and time had a beginning. There have been two main attempts to refute the beginning of the universe. First is called the steady state model, which entails matter popping into existence out of nothing. Because of the mounting evidence for the Big Bang model, this view has been abandoned by most of its adherents. The second attempt to evade the beginning of the universe is called the oscillating model. This model teaches that at some point during the universe's expansion, gravity will halt the expansion and pull everything back together again. From that point, there will be another Big Bang. This process will be repeated over and over again throughout all eternity. However, the oscillating model fails. First, there is no known principle of physics that would reverse the collapse of the universe and cause another Big Bang. Second, current scientific research has shown that the universe is not dense enough for gravity to pull it back together again. And third, if it could be proven that several Big Bangs have occurred, the second law of thermodynamics would still require that there was a first Big Bang. Many scientists accept the beginning of the universe but believe that it does not need a cause. The evidence proposed by these scientists consists of speculation dealing with quantum physics, the study of subatomic particle movement. Appeal is made to Heisenberg's principle of indeterminacy in order to claim that quantum particles pop into existence out of nothing entirely without a cause. However, Heisenberg's principle does not necessitate such an absurd interpretation. Simply because scientists cannot presently find the causes for quantum events does not mean that the causes do not exist. All that Heisenberg's principle states is that scientists are presently unable to accurately and simultaneously measure both the position and the momentum of a subatomic particle. If this principle proved that events can occur without causes, then this would destroy one of the pillars of modern science, the principle of causality, every event must have an adequate cause. It seems obvious to me that the principle of causality is on firmer epistemological ground than the belief that things can pop into existence without a cause. Non-being cannot cause being. If the universe had a beginning, then it needs a cause. Besides the scientific evidence, there is also philosophical evidence for the beginning of the universe. If the universe is eternal, then there would be an actual infinite number of events in time. However, as Zeno's paradoxes have shown, it is impossible to traverse an actual infinite set of points. If we assume the existence of an infinite amount of actual points between two locations, then we can never get from location A to location B, since no matter how many points we have traversed, there will still be an infinite number of points left. If the universe is eternal, then there must exist an actual infinite set of events in the past, but then it would be impossible to reach the present moment. Since the present moment has been reached, there cannot be an actual infinite set of events in the past. There could only be a finite number, therefore there had to be a first event, hence the universe had a beginning. It should also be noted that if it is possible for an actual infinite set to exist outside of a mind, contradictions and absurdities would be generated. To illustrate this point, let us look at two infinite sets. Set A consists of all numbers both odd and even. Set B contains only all the odd numbers. 
set A and set B are equal since they both have an infinite number of members. Still, set A has twice the number of members as set B since set A contains both odd and even numbers while set B contains only odd numbers. It is a clear contradiction to say that set A and set B have an equal amount of members while set A has twice as many members as set B. Therefore, actual infinite sets cannot exist outside the mind. Actual sets existing outside the mind can only be potentially infinite, not actually infinite. These sets can be added to indefinitely. Still, we will never reach an actual infinite by successive addition. Therefore, the universe cannot have an infinite number of events in the past. The universe had a beginning. Since the universe had to have a beginning, it had to have a cause, for from nothing, nothing comes. But if the universe needs a cause, what if the cause of the universe also needs a cause? Could we not have an infinite chain of causes and effects stretching backwards in time throughout all eternity? Obviously, the answer is no, for we have already shown that an actual infinite set existing outside of a mind is impossible. Therefore, an infinite chain of causes and effects is also impossible. There had to be a first uncaused cause of the universe. This uncaused cause would be eternal without beginning or end. Only eternal and uncaused existence can ground the existence of the universe. Several attributes of the uncaused cause of the universe can be discovered through examination of the universe. This debate, hopefully, is evidence that intelligent life exists in the universe. Since intelligence is a perfection found in the universe, the ultimate cause of the universe must also be an intelligent being, for intelligence cannot come from non-intelligence. No one has ever shown how intelligence could evolve from mindless nature. Morality also exists in the universe, for without morality there would be no such thing as right and wrong. However, the moral judgments we make show that we do believe there are such things as right and wrong. Still, nature is non-moral. No one holds a rock morally responsible for tripping him. There is no way that mere molecules in motion could produce moral values. Since nature is non-moral but morality exists in the universe, the cause of the universe must be a moral being. Therefore, the uncaused cause of the universe must be an intelligent moral being. This means that God must be a personal being. Argument number two, the continuing existence of the universe. Experience shows us that limited dependent beings exist. These limited dependent beings need other beings for their continued existence. For example, I depend on air, water, and food to sustain my existence. However, adding limited dependent beings will never give us an independent and unlimited whole. Therefore, the sum total of limited dependent beings is itself limited and dependent. If each individual part of a floor is wood, then the whole floor will be wood. Likewise, if each part of the universe is dependent, then the entire universe is dependent. Hence, the ultimate cause of the continuing existence of all limited dependent beings must be unlimited and independent. There cannot be two or more unlimited and independent beings, since if there were, they would limit one another's existence but then they would not be unlimited. Therefore, there can only be one unlimited and independent being. This being must have all its attributes in an unlimited way, otherwise it could not be an unlimited being. 
The being must be all-powerful, for he is the source of all the power in the universe. No other power can limit him. He is eternal, for he is not limited by time. He is everywhere present, since he is not limited by space. He is immaterial, since he is not limited by matter. This being must be all-good, since he is not limited by evil. He must be all-knowing, since he is not limited by ignorance. Since mindless nature works towards goals, such as acorns always becoming oak trees and not something else, there must be an intelligent designer overseeing natural processes. Without intelligent design, nature's processes would be left to chance. There would be no orderly patterns that could be described as natural laws. Therefore, this infinite and intelligent being, whom all finite and dependent beings depend upon for their continued existence, must be an intelligent being. Argument number three, the design and order found in the universe. The order, design, and complexity found in the universe strongly imply that the universe is not a random, chaotic throwing together of atoms. Rather, it is the product of intelligent design. And as the product of intelligent design, it necessitates the existence of an intelligent designer. Contemporary scientists have found numerous evidences for design in the universe. A few examples will suffice. First, the slightest variation in the expansion rate of the universe would render the universe incapable of sustaining life. Second, British scientists Hoyle and Wickramasinghe estimated that the chances of life evolving from random shuffling of organic molecules is virtually zero. They calculated that there is only one chance in 10 to the 20th power to form a single enzyme and just one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power to produce the approximately 2,000 enzymes that exist. However, Hoyle and McRamasing point out that the production of enzymes is only one step in the generation of life. Therefore, they concluded there must be some type of cosmic intelligence to explain the origin of life. Hoyle compared the probability of life spontaneously generating from non-life as equivalent to the chances of a tornado randomly producing a Boeing 747 from a junkyard. The cell is the basic unit of life. The DNA molecule of a single-celled animal contains enough complex information to fill one volume of an encyclopedia. An explosion in a print shop will never by chance produce one volume of encyclopedia. That amount of information necessitates an intelligent cause. Also, the human brain contains more genetic information than the information found in the world's largest libraries. There is no way that this amount of information could be produced by mere chance. Intelligent intervention is needed. Third, astrophysicist Hugh Ross listed 25 narrowly defined parameters that the universe had to have in order for life to be possible. Ross also pointed out 32 narrowly defined parameters for life concerning the Earth, its moon, its sun, and its galaxy. For instance, if the distance between the Earth and the sun was to differ by just 2% in either direction, no life on Earth would be possible. These parameters for life on Earth clearly show evidence of design and purpose. Fourth, molecular biologist Michael Behe has shown that the irreducible complexity found on the molecular level cannot be explained by the atheistic evolutionary model. Intelligent design is the only adequate explanation. The theistic hypothesis of, an intellig of intelligent design is obviously more plausible 
than the atheistic hypotheses of random chance. My fourth argument, the existence of absolute moral values. We all make moral value judgments when we call the actions of another person wrong. When we do this, we appeal to a moral law. This moral law could not originate with each individual, for then we could not call the actions of another person, such as Adolf Hitler, wrong. The moral law is not a creation of each society, for then one society cannot call the actions of another society, such as Nazi Germany, wrong. The moral law does not come from a world consensus, for world consensus is often mistaken. The world once thought that the earth was flat, the sun revolved around the earth, and slavery was morally acceptable. Appealing to society or world consensus will never give us an adequate cause for the moral law and the moral judgments we make. Appealing to society or world consensus only quantitatively adds men and women. What we need is a moral law qualitatively above man. This moral law must be eternal and unchanging so that we can condemn the actions of the past, such as slavery, the Holocaust, and so forth. The moral law qualitatively above man is not descriptive of the way things are, as is the case with natural laws. The moral law must be prescriptive. It prescribes the way things ought to be. Prescriptive laws need a prescriber. Therefore, a moral lawgiver must exist, and this lawgiver must be eternal and unchanging. My fifth argument, the absurdity of life without God. What hope can an atheist offer mankind? People on their deathbeds don't usually call an atheist to comfort them. Normally a preacher or priest is summoned. Even if an atheist could guarantee us 70 years of happiness, what good would that be when compared with the eternity of non-existence that follows? If there is no God, then Hitler will not be punished for his evil deeds, and Mother Teresa will not be rewarded for her generous works of charity. If there is no God, then a million years from now, it would make no difference if you were a Hitler or a Mother Teresa. Everyone that you would have influenced would have ceased to exist. Can life have any ultimate meaning if there is no God? If non-existence is what awaits us, can we really make sense of life? You live and then you die. There are no eternal consequences. Hitler and Mother Teresa have the same destiny. We all finish our meaningless journeys in total nothingness. The famous atheist Bertrand Russell once wrote, that man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Immediately following that statement, Russell referred to his atheistic philosophy as the firm foundation of unyielding despair. Without God, Life is without meaning. However, if there is a God, then there is hope. The God of the Bible guarantees the defeat of evil and the triumph of good. He guarantees that Hitler will receive his punishment and Mother Teresa will receive her reward. God gives life meaning. For how we choose to live our lives on earth brings eternal consequences. God is our reason to be optimistic about the future. Without God, 
there is no hope. My final argument is the failure of atheism. I've already shown uh, that theism better explains these other factors. Uh, but also it should be noted that uh, atheism cannot adequately explain the laws of logic and mathematics, though both are needed for scientific investigation to begin. Atheism has no way to justify respect for human life, and it cannot offer a plausible explanation for human free will and human responsibility. Thank you. Thank you, Phil Fernandez. Dan Barker will now have 20 minutes for his opening statement. Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Phil. Nice to be back in Seattle again. I brought an umbrella. <laughs> there are millions of good Americans who do not believe in a God, who feel no need for a belief in a God, who live happy, productive, moral, meaningful lives without a belief in a God or spirit world or the, the hereafter. I'm one of them. I used to believe strongly. I dedicated my life to preaching the gospel. I was ordained to the ministry and I preached for 19 years, traveling in Mexico, traveling the country, winning souls for the kingdom. I believed 100%. The Bible says you should be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. And I was a doer. I was out, thinking the world was going to end any moment, knocking on doors, uh, putting my life to the test and putting the Christian life to the test. And I liked most of it. I thought it was great. I, was, I didn't have any bitterness. I didn't have any horrible things happen to me, except I went through a process of reevaluating things intellectually, and I changed my mind. It wasn't easy to do. And that's not why I'm here tonight to tell you my story. If you want to know it, you can read my book called Losing Faith and Faith from Preacher to Atheist. After I became an atheist, I discovered there's just a wonderful subset of humans who live great lives without a belief in a God. In this country, there's at least 25 million. And here in the Seattle area, it's about one out of four people who don't believe in a God. It's the highest rate of unbelief in the entire country, which is something you ought to be proud of here, you know? Uh, An atheist is simply a person who does not believe in a God, for whatever reason, and there are a lot of reasons. The reasons I'm going to give tonight are mine, there are others. But the primary reason that we atheists don't believe in a God is that there is no evidence for a God. There's never been any evidence, well, except for maybe claims to miracles and prayer, but we didn't hear any of those things tonight. Notice that of all of Phil's eloquent statements, he did not give us any evidence for his hypothesis. Notice what he gave us tonight. Words and more words for, not for a God, but for a certain gap in human understanding. How did the universe start? What's the origin of moral values? He didn't give us any positive evidence for his hypothesis. He, he simply showed us a bunch of holes in our understanding and then decided, let's plug those holes with my particular God. There are all sorts of gods you can plug those holes with. Philosophers call this the god of the gaps, and, and humans have been playing that game for centuries and centuries. There was thunder and lightning, and primitive people thought, what is that? They didn't know what it was. It must be a god. Thor, Zeus. But now we understand electricity, we know more about the weather, 
Thor and Zeus are dead. We don't need those. Those gaps have been closed by science. Brilliant minds can come up against a gap and wonder what's the answer. 300 years ago, Isaac Newton, a brilliant scientist, he believed in a God, but the, the brilliant cutting-edge scientist of his day, more than 300 years ago, he figured out the orbits of the planets and gravitation and all that. It was a huge leap forward for the human race. But Isaac Newton, after figuring all that out with his brilliant mind, was stumped by a couple of things. He couldn't figure out why were all the planets going in the same direction and why were they all in the same plane? And the brilliant scientist Isaac Newton said, you know what, there's no answer to that. There is evidence of design in the universe. He came right out and said it. Isaac Newton, we now look back and we can smile. We can say, well, we now know uh, about the formation of solar systems and planets, and now we know you were wrong. That was a gap in his mind back then, which he plugged with his God. Today, there are plenty of gaps in our understanding. Cosmologists are struggling with these gaps. How do we answer this question? Is superstring theory the theory of everything, or isn't it? Uh, and on and on. Is the inflationary universe a good model? There are a lot of huge gaps in understanding, but is Phil going to stand up here and say to the world, we have now reached the end of science? Are you going to tell the scientists of 300 years from now that they can't ever come to an understanding of the cause of the universe? Now we've reached it and therefore your God is the answer? I don't think so. I think, uh, I think we should humble ourselves a little bit and realize we have a lot more to learn. And simply plugging a gap with an unproved hypothesis doesn't do the trick for a philosophical mind. Another reason I don't believe in a God is because the whole idea of a God is not coherent. In order for any statement to be true, it must be in principle falsifiable. Karl Popper was one of the first to articulate this idea. That means that if a statement is true, there must be statements that you can make about that statement which, if true, would make this statement false. If we routinely discovered fully developed horse skeletons in the ancient uh, Precambrian strata, or Precambrian strata with the trilobites, that would be one way of falsifying evolution. If we look for those things and fail to find them, then that strengthens the hypothesis of evolution. But no one has ever presented any falsifiable statements for the God concept. In other words, what is it that would prove you wrong? And how do we go about showing that those proofs have failed? During cross-examination, Phil, I'm going to ask you tonight to provide us with an example of a statement which, if true, would make your hypothesis false. Okay? Uh, and if you want to ask me the same thing, I've got a couple dozen that I would give to you. Uh, if, um, if the statement is not falsifiable in principle, then you cannot say that it's a true hypothesis. So since it's your hypothesis, it's not mine, we atheists didn't come up with the God concept, you theists came up with it. It's your idea, it's your hypothesis, the burden of proof is on your shoulders, and if you want me to prove that it's wrong, then tell me what you would accept as a proof. What would you accept as a proof that your hypothesis is wrong? So far, that has never been offered by anyone that I've talked to. Another evidence that there is no God, and again, my case is cumulative like yours,